As many of you know, I grew up uh, 20 miles north of Little Rock, Arkansas, in a city called Conway. And uh, several years ago, Central Arkansas was rocked by a massive tornado that moved through the area, made national news. Uh, the two towns that were hit the hardest were Mayflower and Bologna, two towns located right outside of Conway. And while no one I know from those areas was hit very hard, there were a number of families who lost everything. I have a few pictures from that. This is one of the pictures taken. A couple more. Go to the next one there. Look at that. It's unbelievable. And uh, during that week, I was following the reports on the news, and one story that made national news that was extremely tragic was a story about a husband and wife who on top of losing everything, losing their home, they lost both boys as well. One report it read, while sheltered beneath the mattress in their bathtub, Daniel and April Smith had their house ripped from its foundation and though they miraculously survived, they lost their only two sons, Tyler, who was seven, and Cameron, who was nine. Extremely tragic, terribly sad story. And unfortunately, stories like that are, are not all that, that uncommon, though we wish that they were. As we read the newspapers, we watch the news, and, and as we just hang out with our friends and family and hear their stories, right? We, we hear about these tragedies all the time. And when we witness these things, a question that many often ask is this, why? Why do these things happen? Where is God in all this? Where was he when the tornado swept through central Arkansas? What was he doing on that night? Was he doing anything at all? Does he really care? Is he concerned and is he at work in our world? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk. Yes, that is a book in the Bible, Habakkuk. You can find it by looking in your table of contents. Don't be too proud to do that every now and again. Uh, if you can find the book of Nahum and Zephaniah, it's between those two books. Some of you are like, thanks a lot. That helped me, helped me a great deal there. Well, you got some time. You got some time to get there. For the next four weeks, we are going to be studying through this book. Times were tough in Habakkuk's day. And he too is crying out to God and he is wondering what God is up to. And we are going to discover in this study how we are to respond to God when the storms of this life hit. Nothing more practical than that right there, right? We're going to learn the right response when life is rough. But before we get into the book, let me take just a few moments to give you a little background of the book and, and a background to the minor prophets section of Scripture where Habakkuk is found. After the period of the judges in the Old Testament, God's people decided that they wanted to be like the rest of the nations and wanted an earthly king to rule over them. And so at first, God appointed Saul as king. And while Saul did a good job militarily, he did a poor job morally. 
So he was eventually replaced by David. And God promised David that his kingdom would be established forever. And though you know and I know that was eventually fulfilled in Jesus, it looked like that was going to be the case early on when David took the throne and then his son Solomon took power. But then we had Solomon's son take the throne, a guy by the name of Rehoboam. He was an oppressive and unwise ruler, and as a result of his oppressive rule, the kingdom of Israel was divided. The 12 tribes of Israel were split. Ten went north and became known as the northern kingdom, and two stayed in the south and became the southern kingdom. The ten that went up north, they set up a new capital in Samaria, and along with that new capital, they also set up a new temple, which was a big no-no because God had told them clearly where the temple was to be. It was to be in the south in Jerusalem. But we find during this period of time that there were very few in either kingdom who were all that concerned with what God had said in his word. So they built the temple up north. They attempted to worship God there. And it's during this time, during the time of the divided kingdom, when the minor prophet books were written and when these events are taking place. The prophecy books in the Old Testament go from Isaiah to Malachi and they're grouped together by size. The larger five books are placed first and they're classified as the major prophets and these include the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the 12 minor prophets are from Hosea to Malachi. And again, they're labeled in this way, not because they're less important, but because of their size. The book of Habakkuk is a very important book, but it's only three chapters. It's the eighth book in the minor prophets section of scripture. Maybe that'll help you if you're still looking, right? This book was written during the time right before the southern kingdom Fell. So the minor prophet books, they're either addressed to those in the northern kingdom before the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, or they're written to those in the southern kingdom before the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. And there are also books that are written to God's people after they return from Babylonian captivity. Okay? These books span a long period of time, a period of over 300 years written from the 700s to the 400s when the Jewish kingdom was divided. The two key dates to keep in mind when you're studying through the minor prophets are 722 B.C. and 597 B.C. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722 and the southern kingdom fell in 597 to the Babylonians. Though both the northern and southern kingdoms were made up of different tribes, different places of worship in different areas, they all had one thing in common. They were all sinners. People in both kingdoms from the top down had sinned and rebelled against God, same as the nations surrounding them, which resulted in God sending prophets to them to tell them about what's to come if they don't straighten up. And later, God sends judgment to both, 
Okay, so that's a little background on the Minor Prophets. Now let's look at the book of Habakkuk. Hopefully you're there by now. The author is Habakkuk. We learn that in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. We're told the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. And while there's a lot of speculation about who Habakkuk is, the information we know about him for sure comes from the book. His name means embraced or embracer. Some commentators have argued that this is significant. Lots of names were significant in this time. Uh, my Old Testament professor from Mid-America, Dr. Stephen Miller, in his commentary on Habakkuk wrote, possibly the idea is that the prophet was embraced by the Lord as his child and as his special messenger. Some have also argued that Habakkuk was a Levite, that he had a job within the temple. He was an official temple musician because of what's written in Habakkuk chapter 3. When we read that, you'll see it sounds just like a psalm. It's Habakkuk's psalm, his prayer, his praise toward God. He also mentions stringed instruments being sung to his song in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 19. So for those reasons, people believe that he was uh, his job involved something doing with worship in, in the temple. But we don't know that for sure. But what we do know about the prophet was that he was a prophet in the days of Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. And we also learn from the book that he had a special relationship with God. For two-thirds of the book, you have this back and forth between Habakkuk and God, making this book unique. In many of the minor prophet books, you have the prophet speaking to God's people on God's behalf. In Habakkuk, you have the prophet speaking to God on his people's behalf, okay? So very unique in that way. We also learn from this book that Habakkuk was a godly man who was zealous for God's glory, and he was burdened by the sin of his people. Date of the book. A good date for the book is around the early 600s, 605 B.C. Few reasons for this date. One is the mention of the wickedness of the Jews in the southern kingdom in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. That would not have been the case when King Josiah was ruling. That was the spiritual high point of God's people's history. And Josiah ruled from 640 to 609. Okay, what, what is described by the prophet here is really the state of God's people after King Josiah when his son ruled, King Jehoiakim. And he ruled from 609 to 597. The book was thought to have been written as the Babylonians are advancing on Jerusalem after the fall of Assyria and during the destruction of Egypt. They plow through the Assyrians, then they plow through Egypt, and they make their way to the southern kingdom. That would have been a time toward the end of the 600s. So a good date for it is, is early in Jehoiakim's reign, probably around 605. The audience, this is written to Jews in the southern kingdom right before Babylonian captivity. So the book of Habakkuk, 
is written right before the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah and is written during one of the lowest points in God's people's history. It's not a good time for the Jews in the southern kingdom. And we're going to learn in our passage for today that this prophet Habakkuk is fed up with the moral decline of his people. And he desperately wants God to act. He longs for revival. He is hoping God will act in such a way that will humble his people and direct them back toward God. And so he's just going to talk to God about it. Things aren't going well with his people. Habakkuk is wanting to see a change. He's been asking God about it, praying for change, and it seems as if nothing is happening. Anybody ever been there? Times are terrible. You long for things to be different and you pray and pray and nothing seems to be happening. Anybody? Well, if this is you, I have good news for you. In this book, as we study the actions of God's prophet here, we learn how we're to respond to God when tough times come. And we also get insight from God's response as well on his end. All right? This morning we're going to be looking at Habakkuk's first question and God's answer from Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. In our passage for today we will see God's strange response in rough times. God's strange response in rough times. There are two strange things that God does in this passage during this dark, difficult time in his people's history that we often see repeated in Scripture and in our own lives that if we're honest, it causes us at times to scratch our heads and question God's hand and his plan. Notice the first strange response in this story is that God seems to be unresponsive leaving his prophet confused. That's the first thing we see. We, we learn here as we learn in other places in scripture that at times God's inactivity can be confusing. Look at verse 1 of Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Let's stop there for just a minute. The word oracle is not a word we often use today. It's the Hebrew word masa. It means message or pronouncement. You'll also notice in some of your translations that the word burden is used because the root of that word means to lift or to carry. In this book, Habakkuk is going to receive a message from God and that message is a burden. It's heavy. It's weighty. Habakkuk's going to be shown something by God about his people that is going to be difficult for him to hear and I'm sure difficult to share but necessary for him to both hear and preach. God is going to give Habakkuk an important prophetic message. At times, this is the task of the preacher or teacher of God's word. You read God's word, it's weighty, but you have to preach it, right? Even though it's tough to hear, it's necessary. And, and believers, we have all been given a message that we are to receive, respond to, and share. And it can be a weighty 
message. God's gospel message can be weighty. I know some of you feel the weight of that at times. When you have a friend or family member you know doesn't know Jesus, you need to share the gospel message with them, but a large part of that message tells them that they are sinners set against God who need to repent or they'll be condemned. That's weighty. Your message for them is for them to forsake their sin and give their lives up over to the Lord Jesus to step up off the tiny throne of the kingdom of self and bow the knee to King Jesus. That is a tough message to share at times, but it is a necessary message that needs to be shared by you. That's what Habakkuk is going to receive here in this book, a weighty message. Notice also we're told in verse 1 that this is a message Habakkuk saw. How do you see a message? Some believe that God gave him visions of his people being destroyed by the Babylonians. Others believe that God gave the prophet spiritual eyes to understand the message he speaks to him, this prophetic message of judgment. We don't know for sure. Either way, Habakkuk's going to get the picture from God's message. Notice how Habakkuk begins this dialogue with God. Look at verse 2. O Lord, how long? Shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Notice, this book begins with a complaint by Habakkuk. Habakkuk is crying out. He's complaining to God, How long, O Lord, am I to cry to you for help? I imagine he's been crying out for a while, don't you? You ever been there? You ever been through a difficult time and you pray and you pray and you ask prayer request after prayer request and you cry out again and again and you begin to think to yourself, how long am I going to have to pray for this? It's what Habakkuk is thinking here. He says, why are you not responding? Why are you standing idly by looking on while your people continue in sin? Why do you allow this wickedness to go unpunished? Notice here, Habakkuk is fed up with his people and their wickedness. He is God's appointed prophet in these dark days of his people's history and he has put out with them and their wickedness and he is desperately wanting God to respond. Notice how bad things had gotten in Judah. Habakkuk says the law is paralyzed. It goes forth perverted. Though God had given him their laws, he had given his people their laws to live by, they were living as if there were no laws. They were living as if the law did not exist, that it was paralyzed. It was going forth perverted. They, it, it had little impact on them. He says, when I look at the behavior of those around me, all I see is injustice and evil and destruction and violence and immorality. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like our context, doesn't it? And he says, I'm wanting to know why you, God, are allowing this to go unpunished. Now let's be honest for a minute. How many of you, when you hear this, you get a little bit uncomfortable with the way Habakkuk is addressing God? Is Habakkuk in the wrong here? What do you think? 
Now, listen. We see this here and elsewhere that, that God wants us to be honest with him. Express this honesty toward him. First notice, the, the prophet expresses a righteous anger toward the wickedness of his people. We know that's honoring to God, right? We're told in his word that it is. God wants us to be imitators of him. And one way we are imitators of him is by loving what he loves and hating what he hates. God loves that which is holy and righteous and just and good. And he hates that which is immoral and wicked and evil. So we know that Habakkuk's heart's in the right place. We also learn here, like we do elsewhere, that the one true God of the scriptures, unlike the false gods in Habakkuk's day and in our day, is a personal God. God, who wants to have a close relationship with his people. And two key characteristics of a healthy relationship, get this, is honesty and trust. Honesty and trust. God wants us to exhibit both in our relationship with him. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to be honest with him while still being reverent toward him. But he also wants us to trust him completely. And we'll discuss trust more in here in just a moment. But notice here, Habakkuk begins by being extremely honest with God. He is taking issue with God's silence and inactivity. Now, Habakkuk realizes this problem's not too big for God, okay? Notice the questions he asks. How long and why do you? He, he knows God's in control. Habakkuk has an extremely high view of God. We're going to see that as we move through this. He knows God has the power to fix things, to restore the brokenness of their people through whatever means he deems necessary. He's just not doing it. So he approaches God with this bold honesty. Folks, did you know that you can approach God in this way, the way Habakkuk does here? The first lesson we learn here from Habakkuk is that when difficulties come, our first response should be to hit our knees and cry out to him. Not against him, but cry out to him. That's what Habakkuk does. He doesn't turn to another prophet. He doesn't turn to another professional. He doesn't turn to his friends, family. He cries out to God. I'm often... I'm afraid that oftentimes crying out to God, going forth on our knees, crying out to Him, that's not even close to being our first response. When the storms of this life hit, He's often fourth or fifth on the list. He wants to be first. He wants us to go to Him. He wants us to be honest with Him. We can come to Him. We can appeal to His character. We can express the frustration and the disdain we have when it comes to the fallen state of things in our world in which we live. We can cry out to God when it feels as if He is removed from us and unresponsive. We can and sure ex should express a desire for God to act and for God to work and for God to fix the brokenness in our world by whatever means he deems necessary that being said it's also important for us to know and trust watch this that God is on a different timetable than us amen we know that's the case and it is right for us to trust his ways are above our ways and that is timing is perfect unlike ours 
Watch this. What seems like inactivity to us, we learn in Scripture, is simply the wonderfully designed, skillfully executed, perfectly timed plan of God. Now, it's, it's unique. And just as God doesn't often respond in the time in which we wish he would, listen, God often carries out his plans in ways that we wouldn't as well. And that leads us to our second point. Notice in addition to God's inactivity at times being confusing, point number two, his work of providence is at times disturbing. The way he does things, it floors us. It's not the way we would do them. Look beginning in verse 5. God says, God's speaking here now, responding to his prophet. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, Habakkuk is crying out to God. He's saying, how long, O Lord, are you going to stand idly by and do nothing while your people openly and blatantly violate your laws and sin against you? And in verses 5 through 11, we see God's response. He basically says, you think I've been sleeping at the wheel, Habakkuk, but you're going to find out soon enough that that's not been the case. I'm going to do something in your day that you and your people and the you here is plural in southern Hebrew it's y'all it's what that means okay he says I'm going to do something in your day that y'all are not going to believe even if it were told to you truth is I'm going to respond my people are going to be punished and I'm going to use the Chaldeans to do it Behold, I'm raising them up, that bitter and hasty nation, that nation that walked through Nineveh, destroyed the Assyrians, annihilated the Egyptians, that nation that is marching through the breadth of the earth, seizing up lands left and right that are not their own. Notice what else he says about them. Keep reading, verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. He says, I'm going to use this powerful, awful, terrifying, wicked nation. He says, justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they make up their own rules. They don't live by my law. They live by their own code. The Babylonians are a law to themselves. Now remember, in the previous point, Habakkuk had been critical of his own people who lived as if the law had been paralyzed that God had given them. There is no justice among the people of God. God's people were sinning against one another and sinning against God. Justice was being perverted. God says in response, because of that, I'm going to use another nation, wicked and terrible, who live by their own laws as a law to themselves to punish my people. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Look how powerful they are. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Boy, I love the, the, the imagery here. More fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. That means there is nothing stopping them. They are setting ahead and they're just plowing through nations. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. 
They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They got one thing on their mind, death and destruction. They gather captives like the sand. At kings, they scoff. They're a prideful bunch. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. It doesn't matter how big, how impressive, not as impressive as the Babylonians. They pile up the earth and take it, verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. The only thing they worship is their own strength. God says, I'm going to use this wicked and godless Fierce, powerful, heartless, unpitying, arrogant, and prideful nation to punish my people. Now, how do you think Habakkuk felt about that answer? How did, how did he like those apples? What do you think? He didn't. He, he wanted God to clean up the mess in Judah, but do you think he was happy about the idea that God was going to use the Babylonians to do it? Not at all. We're going to learn next week that Habakkuk is going to take issue with this as well. Let me put it into perspective for you. How many of you are burdened by the wickedness in our nation today? A lot of you, right? Probably mostly all of you. Let me ask you this. How would you feel if you were praying that God would make things right here and you were crying out for God to do this work. And he said, I'm going to do this work in your country. I'm going to punish the evils in the U.S. and I'm going to use terrorists to do it. I'm going to punish the false teachers in your day and I'm going to use the atheists to make them look foolish. I'm going to give those who don't believe in God more influence than those who falsely represent him. How might you respond to that response? Probably like Habakkuk. He'd say, why them? They're as bad, if not worse. Now you have Habakkuk's perspective. The fact that God was going to use an evil nation to punish a lesser evil nation floored him. The way God works at times, providentially, it can be disturbing. But notice something important we see here about God's work. This is very important. While the Babylonians were powerful and impressive, look back up at verse 6. God says what? I am raising up the Chaldeans. God says, they are my instruments. While they are a law to themselves, while they take all the credit, they worship their own strength, God says they're pawns in my hand. They do my bidding. They rise or fall at my word. They are doing my work. They are instruments of my judgment. They are not in the driver's seat. I am. And folks, that goes for every nation and every people, every leader. How thankful are you believers that our God is a sovereign God to the extent that his most powerful enemies are pawns in his hand. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's our God. So we've learned this morning 
while God's inactivity can be confusing, His plan is flawlessly designed, skillfully executed, and perfectly timed. God's timing, His work, His plan is always right. It's always good. And we have also learned that God's work of providence, though at times can be disturbing when one considers what He allows and who He uses, God proves that what He allows and what He uses Though he works in and through good and bad, he is sovereign over the situation. He is at work through the wicked and the godly, through the worst of situations, the darkest of storms, and the best of circumstances. He doesn't cause those bad things to happen, but he allows for them and works in and through them for his purposes and for his glory. And he's at work in this way today. God's not changed. God's not changed. Take heart, believers. He's at work in this way today. And though his timing may seem delayed to you, it's on time. Trust in him. Look to him and follow faithfully. That's what Habakkuk does. Well, we're going to talk more on this dialogue next week with God and Habakkuk. But to end, let me simply show you this. Something very, very important that we learn from this book and from this passage we've been looking at today and what we've been talking about today. We learn in this story that while it may be delayed, get this, God's judgment is sure. He sends judgment. He sends it to his own people, and he sends it eventually to the Chaldeans as well. Babylonians, whose God is their own strength, are going to face God in judgment. And the Jews who do that which is right in their own eyes in this story live as if God's law is paralyzed. They will face God in judgment. Scripture is crystal clear on that. And listen, folks. As sure as God brought judgment upon his people in Judah through the Babylonians, and as sure as his judgment was poured out on the Babylonians, his judgment will be poured out on all who reject God's Son alone for salvation. That's crystal clear in Scripture. God sent his Son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sin condition. The only lifeline we got, the only rescue, the only hope of rescue that we have from sin and judgment is in Christ alone. God sent him. Christ came willingly and he lived and died and rose again. And get this, he is returning. God's son is returning. He's returning for his bride. He's returning for his church. All of those who have been rescued from sin and death by faith alone in Christ alone, he's coming for them. But get this, he is also coming in judgment. Christ is coming in judgment. We're told to set aside those who have rejected him. And he's going to set them apart for eternal punishment in hell harsh words but listen never have truer words been spoken and the simple question I want to leave you with today is this are you ready for that day are you ready are you prepared 
for Judgment Day? Are you prepared for Christ's return? Listen, while we don't know when that day will be, we know we're closer than when we started the service. We're closer than we've ever been. He is returning someday soon. And that someday might just be today. So we got to be ready. Are you ready? If not, I urge you today, ready yourself. Prepare yourself for that day. So the day of the Lord, that day can be a glorious day for you. You can do so today. You can be prepared today. By looking to Christ and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. If you would forsake your sin, turn from your sin, bow the knee to Christ today as Lord. Make Him Lord of your life. You can be saved. You can be rescued and promised life eternal in the presence of the Lord with His people forever. If you've never made that decision, I urge you to do so today. Let's pray together.